Welcome to Kafaro Cast, everyone. It's Monday morning. We are back from our mule deer hunt, Frank and I, and uh, we have a guest that we were supposed to have on about a year ago that I met a year ago on the mule deer hunt in 2018. Who uh, that is, uh, Omni Warner. Omni, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Frank. It's good, it's good to have you on. Man. How are you doing? Been good. Just worn out. It's been a rough rough couple weeks. Actually, month if you go back to the sheep hunt too. You've been living living on the mountain. Do you lose a bunch of weight? I did. I got on the scale and I weigh less right now than I weighed when I was in high school playing football. So it kind of <laughs> feels strange. <laughs> we we had a lot of guys uh, bug us throughout the the year from from after last year's um, mule deer hunt, and then obviously there's a lot of guys that know you. They're like, hey, when are you gonna have them on? And and then uh, what well, just worked out. Um, you know, this year that uh, we we were talking back and forth through inReach and on the phone a little bit during the hunt um, this year, and I'm like, hey, dude, you got time Monday? Because <laughs> I had to come off the mountain because uh, we're heading for to Alaska. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be in the office, and you had tagged out, so it worked out pretty well. But you 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 shot a, a Colorado Ram and a mule deer already. I did. It's been a good year already. So. Um. Colorado was generous enough to give me a couple tags since New Mexico doesn't generally want to give me tags. So, How, how was the uh, the sheep hunt? Did I describe it as, as physically painful as, as it was <laughs> or was it worse? Um, I don't know if anybody can describe that sheep hunt exactly what it was. I think plenty of people tried to give me a warning. You gave me a warning and then I had another gentleman that gave me the warning. And I, I think the the classic saying was you better put your big boy pants on. Um and I don't think there's anything that can prepare you for that sheep hunt unless you just go do it and experience it. I would say even all of the deer hunts that I've done in high country, I always did those in preparation for a sheep hunt, and they weren't enough preparation for that. Um, it's just, it's intense. Yeah, the terrain is, is bad, and I, I thought it was funny because I, I had mentioned the same thing to someone else a few years ago that you mentioned to me, and that was that uh, I, had, I had missed an animal, and it, it turned out, it was probably a good thing I did miss because it would not have ended well, f- both physically and weather. And, and you said you had actually had, had missed and a storm came in that you thought there was a good chance you guys could have died. What, what happened with all of that? How was the Was there lightning going off everywhere? And what was yeah, going on? It, it did. Um, you know, it's funny how some things play out for reasons and time at the time you don't understand why. And it's, <clears throat> we end up having see what was this several days into the hunt i don't remember exactly what day but we'd been hunting on the mountain and it felt it felt you know just like we'd been kicked in the teeth over and over and then i finally got a break and got a stock on a ram um climbed to the top of the mountain come around the corner to get a shot at him and when i was trying to get shots at him i was like cliffing out at spots just real narrow little pinches trying to get around to him and the shot was what i thought was reasonable i ranged the ram like at 63 yards um, and I thought I, my brother's got the video of me making the shot and everything. Everything felt good. The shot felt right, the execution. And I wasn't even shooting that up and down angle. I mean, it was fairly same elevation. But I, I knew my arrow went right underneath the ram. And I couldn't figure out why I shot low. It just, I set my sight exactly for the yardage. Everything felt perfect. And I wasn't sure when I talked to my brother. I, you know, I'm like, I don't even know if I can go get my arrow where this ram's at. And I end up getting enough guts <laughs> to get over to it because it's just cliffed out. 
And when I get over to it, right, it, the, the bench is only wide enough to get my body across um, to where this ram was bedded. And it just, it drops, I don't know, a thousand feet or more. Um, and I finally got over there, picked up my arrow. Sure enough, I missed the ram. But the ram ran straight downhill into just some nasty stuff. And I got back, and it's like you almost want to just cry, and it feel deflated. And before we could even get back to camp that night, the thunderstorms roll in. And you'd warned me about the thunderstorms, but they just roar in that country. And they started lightening up the sky everywhere. I'm not sure how long it lightning and thundered that night. But when we all woke up the next morning or when we got out of our tent the next morning, we all had the same story. It's like, yeah, we were all curled in the fetal position praying all night long <laughs> just that we weren't going to die from the lightning. Um, it was just intense on that mountain. And uh, we ended up leaving out. So we hunted that next day, and then we left out. And when we came across the face of that mountain, it's like I don't think I could have found that ram even if I'd have hit him between the rain and just – the cliffs and everything about it. It's like, yeah, that was a good thing. I did not kill that ram there. I mean, it was, some things are meant to be, and there's reasons why it was better that we weren't stuck on that mountain trying to find that ram that night, or even the next day trying to find him. Cause I don't think we could have found that ram in there. Um, I think that, um, and, and Frank's been in the area quite a bit as well that, I mean, you've killed stuff all over and, and some, in some very large, animals and i mean you have no issue i mean obviously we've hunted together now you have no issue i mean you've got the balls it takes to you know i know where you're going and where you're hunting and and it's not like you're a timid guy right so i this year as as you know as we were sending in reach messages back and forth there was a plethora of people on the mountain and half of the people that i ran into had bitten off way more than they could chew. And I don't think that most people understand even a, an average high country hunt requires three to five miles in some pretty, you know, and then the party's just getting started because you've got the climb to the glassing point and whatever it takes to get on the stock. And when you, when you take that, everything that you've already done, and then you have someone say, hey, this is going to be much, much more difficult. I don't think that people grasp the amount of ass whooping you're about to receive because you have the the cliffed out part, the cliffs. Um, just the sheer terrain is bad. Then you have the water issue, which generally is an issue, uh, and then you have just the um, the the fact that getting the animal out, depending upon where it dies and where your vehicle is, and all these different things combined. I don't. You know, and I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not talking down on people that don't hunt out west, but I've gotten in arguments with guys about whitetail hunting, you know, and how skittish whitetails are and mule deer are dumb. And I'm like, well, you can weigh 400 pounds and kill a pretty big whitetail. You're not, <laughs> you're not going to, and I'm not taking anything, yeah. a, 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 an old whitetail is extremely hard to kill. But with what Frank and I just did, which you, which you know what Frank and I just did, and bouncing back and forth three to four miles flying around trying to find these deer, it's a different difficult than killing a cagey whitetail. You have to worry about getting struck by lightning, the bears eating your food, not getting any sleep, not having any water, your feet being beat to death. It's tough, man, and you've done it for years. I mean, and been successful at it, so. Yeah, a couple anyways. 
But forget about the bears. It's the marmots in that yeah. country. <laughs> <laughs> and I warned I didn't you. tell you, oh, it's nuts. And then someone else did too. And it's like, yeah, marmots aren't that bad. So I go on a scouting trip. And when I go on my scouting trip, I leave my trekking poles there by my tent. And I didn't stand them up. Well, the marmots ate everything rubber off of my, <laughs> my walking sticks. And I'm like, what the heck is up with this? And I get back and there's a marmot at my tent. And this little bug, he wants to be my buddy. He doesn't even want to leave. And so literally I'm like touching him with my trekking pole and he just wants to play with my pole. <laughs> so it's just, it, it's crazy how those marmots are so friendly up there. But then the day that I missed that sheep, we got back to our tent that night and we got three tents that we'd set up. And they don't bother anybody else's tent but mine, right? They know who's hunting, I guess. And I open up my tent, my food's strung everywhere. <laughs> and then they tried to eat into my tent. So I've got holes on the sides of my tent. And then my sleeping pad, they ate my sleeping pad. <laughs> so now my sleeping pad is completely deflated. And I'm trying to patch that in the dark while the lightning storm's going on. And so I, I somewhat get that patched. Um, but it still goes flat on me in the middle of the night and I'm sleeping during the middle of the night. And all of a sudden I wake up coughing early morning trying to figure out what's going on and what I'm choking on. And the marmot ate my sleeping bag and I'm inhaling <laughs> it down from my sleeping bag. I'm like, what the heck? And so, you know, it's just, you get kicked in the teeth for missing a sheep and then a marmot tears up your camp and it's just one thing after another. And it's like, why do you even want to stay up on the mountain? You know, my wife asked me that you call all that stuff fun. You know, what, where's the fun in any of that? But when I ran into, uh, I don't know if we can, I don't know. He's under the cover brother. So we'll just call him scuba. When I ran into scuba, <laughs> uh, I had missed a, a mammoth buck the day I, I hiked out and I was talking to him about it. And, and I'm like, dude, sometimes you contemplate your sanity and scuba's pretty funny. He's like, dude, every year about two weeks into the season, I'm like, you know, when you have those kicked in the teeth times, you're like, why do I put myself through this? What am I doing? Like, what the hell is going on in my brain to, to push me to, to do these things? And how do I consider it fun? Which it's not always fun. I mean, you may, I think your mind blocks out the bad stuff and you only remember the good when you're getting ready to go the next year. There's a lot yep. of bad. <laughs> <They're> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a different level of fun. And if you, I don't, I don't know that you call it fun. Right. I mean, it's one of those things. I enjoy things that are hard and difficult and everything about that, those hunts, the high country hunts is difficult. Um, but the reward is just so much bigger if you can get there. Um, the reality is it's just so hard to actually have success in the high country. You fight wind, you fight scent, you fight eating good food. You know, you don't sleep well. Everything about it is just hard and demoralizing. There's nothing fun about it, if you will. Yeah, you have to have a sick, twisted uh, sense of fun, I guess. Like, it's mm -hmm. it's not fun like when you, you know, go watch a movie with a family fun. It's a, it's a different type of fun. Um, it's, the, uh, exactly. it's the achievement after after you finish. Well, yep. I didn't have any fun then this year because I haven't killed shit yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, the season's still going. That's why the season's so long. Just a hiking trip. It was a hiking trip. Well, it was it was um, not to over-dramatize high country mule deer hunting, but I just don't think that a lot of people comprehend. I'm, and I'm not talking about little little bucks. Like, it's relatively easy to shoot, you know, sub-three-and-a-half-year-old deer. A lot of them will live by the trail or they don't. You know, they, they, they aren't in as um, 
uh, unattainable positions as, as others. Um, and when you, when you get back there and you, you spot these deer and you're like, huh, shit, that's two miles away. I'm going to have to go all the way over, you know, like, you know, and, and whatever altitude gained and lost, it's, it's fairly significant. And, and, um, I'm only bringing this up, uh, cause you've done it so much. What, what would you say would be the number one biggest issue people from out of state would have kind of one, two and three or, or issues you've had getting on like a high country mule deer and you've shot a pile of big mule deer. So just to kind of give everybody a background, you've put some big animals on the ground. What, what would you say is like, okay, here's where you're first going to have issues. I don't know. It's just, you know, one is getting into the country and finding them. I mean, the whole reason we hunt in the back country is it should be traditionally to get away from people and then to actually find bigger animals. Um, but that's not always the case anymore. You know, my brother's example this year, and I won't go into all of his story, but it was a great buck, and we didn't even find it in the backcountry in the in the nasty stuff. And so, you know, you try to get away from people. If you're not away from people, then and you got other hunting pressure around you, which seems to be more and more common in the backcountry, then it makes it even more difficult. Hunting bucks that are being jostled around and pushed around, yeah, it's just tough. Um, but you know, if you're going to kill a high country buck like that, I, I don't know. You got to get back there first, and then you got to find them. And so for me, it's having good glass um, and being able to locate them and piece everything together. And then if the wind is everything in the high country or with any deer, it doesn't matter if you're in the high country or lowland, but you got to have the wind in your favor. Um, you and I have talked about that, trying to figure out how to make stocks. And I've learned that from a few other people, you know, and just even mistakes, trying to come in from below or same elevation or stuff like that. Anytime you can come in with the wind going uphill and, and you're coming from above the buck, I think your odds just go way up and be able to actually get on the buck and get a shot. But then, you know, I think one of the mistakes that I made early on is, well, and one of the big game changers in any archery hunting is rangefinders, and then having a rangefinder that actually has angle compensation in it. I remember running into a guy, I think it was last year, and the guy didn't understand what a third third axis on his site was. I think he'd fallen and broken his site and he ran down to town and just put a site like from Walmart or a cheapie on it. Didn't he break like, his Swarovskis in half too? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, he just threw it on there and he's like, yeah, I sighted in at the trailhead. I'm like, dude, I don't even think you have a third axis on that. Do you? And he's like, what's the third axis? I'm like, man, if you don't have a third axis and you're trying to shoot in steep angles, you don't have a prayer. So go shoot it and learn it and figure out what that means. What does a third axis do for you? How do you level your sight? How do you set everything? And then having a rangefinder that will give you the angle compensation for it. If you don't have stuff like that and then learn it and use it, then I don't think you have hardly even a chance of being able to kill a buck in a country like that. Um, but that's a huge game changer. I remember when we first started doing it, we were just using a rangefinder, and then we had like a pendulum that we would measure and then you'd have to run down a, a cut chart to figure it out. And it just took longer. So these new range finders are just awesome with being able to shoot the range, gives you the compensation, and then you just set your sight to it or you, you know, shoot the yardage. Um, I can't imagine how hard that was if you rewind 15, 20 years ago before you even had a range finder. I, I remember in 80, or not 80, 98 or 9 on a sheep hunt, uh, being with a guy and I think 
we didn't have a rangefinder, and I think he fired off two full quivers full of arrows, every one of them yeah. high, because yep. we were probably supposed to shoot it for twenty eight, but it was it was you know looking like fifty, <laughs> but with yeah. the cut, you know. And so the first shot was like literally eleven feet high, but mm -hmm. you know back then that cut chart thing. I remember f that Full Moon Productions video came out. And right. I had the same thing. I had a clinometer or whatever glued to the side of my rangefinder. The pendulum, mm -hmm. what you're talking about, gives you the angle, and then you do the cut chart. And that was like as high tech as you could get back then. And you know, you learn quick construction math by deduction, where you're like three percent, three six nine twelve fifteen, and it's cut uh, eighteen yards. Cut cut eighteen yards off, and yep. now yep. it's pretty much handed to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny you say eighteen yards. The buck I killed this year actually cut 18 yards off i mean it just happened to where i knew the yardage and then knew the cut yardage and it was 18 yards difference ranged yardage so line of sight versus the horizontal yardage that i shot i mean that's that's almost two pins right it's almost 20 yards <laughs> yeah um use one pin off and 10 yards makes a huge difference you completely miss so it's very very critical I don't have to worry about that anymore. I have no pins. <laughs> Simplified thing. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Is that oh, why so, you do that? Is yeah, that the man. whole reason? I'm sure it is, right? Mm, man, it was... Well, I got a bunch of, of messages, and you you and I had, had, had been stuck with our asses beside uh, each other's on the mountain for quite a bit last year, and you were actually pushing me a few times to go on stocks that... You were like, man, I think you can make it in there. And I was kind of being a chicken because I didn't want to blow them, you know, out just for the simple fact of the the, the distance. And scuba uh, hunted with a recurve for 17, 18 mm -hmm. years, I think. So yep. the di difference is, and, and Frank and I talked about it on, I guess, three of the stocks that I went on where you were flagging me in, is the difference with the compound is when you get into the terrace cliffs, you can stop at 40 or 50 and hang back and wait for them to stand. Where yep. with the recurve, you're getting sub 20 and you don't have, well, that one buck pinned me in what, 0.2 seconds? Like I was like 12 yards from him and he was a five by seven or six by nine, uh, a, 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 you know, very, very good non-typical buck. And the, the difference is, is I'm at 11 yards, 12 yards, whatever. I didn't need to range it. And, and I thought, okay, I'll see his antlers and go to full draw when he comes out behind the rock. And Frank was filming this, and I didn't see the antlers. He just came out from behind the rock, and probably half of his neck cleared, and he pinned me immediately. Like, do not pass go, do not collect. He didn't, his body didn't even clear for anything other than a neck shot. Looked at me and was like, oh, hey, I saw you yesterday. Gave me the middle <laughs> finger and got out of there. I was like, you have got to be shitting me. Where with the compound, you can just hang back 40 or 50 when they come out and shoot them. But when you're that close in their front yard... Yeah, they're like, oh, I haven't seen that big fat guy before, and then they blow out. So it's <clears throat> different situation and different setup. I I like the challenge, but uh, there are times when you've got a deer at seventy, and you're like, huh, I really I really like my compound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just not that good of a hunter. I I don't know. I couldn't bring myself to doing that. I admire you for being able to do it and shoot as well as you do, and harvest animals. But man, it's just I'm not that good. What's that bow that uh, Tim Wells shoots? It's like a hybrid recurve. Oneida. Yeah. yeah. You Oneida. should get one of those just to mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. high country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think not to bounce back, but like last year, um, 
and it was, uh, you know, whatever you and, and Scuba and your brother Wesley. And, you know, there was just certain animals I couldn't even approach. It was like, yeah, go ahead, guys. You know, I mean, you guys were looking for much mm-hmm. larger deer than I was, but it's it's just that simple. There's, there's certainly, in my opinion, sub 30, the stick bow is probably better in a, a guy who is, um, the, if a guy's a good shot, a stick bow is probably better sub 30 because you can kind of snap shoot and get an arrow off quicker. quicker. Yep. But man, after that... I'm well. I couldn't even the, sh- the buck I I shot at that last day. There's no way I could have shot at it with a compound just for the angle and how to draw and how my footing was in the cliffs and everything else. But for the most part, I mean, it is a lot easier, you know, forty to eighty, right? <laughs> just yeah, how it yeah. is. But yeah, what Extend um your range? Yeah, exactly. T- t- tell everybody a little bit about some of your more highlighted animals you've gotten. Just I, I've seen them or seen some of them, but you've you've been on some pretty cool hunts. What are uh, some of the more I don't know, guess memorable or larger animals you've shot? One a little both. Mm, so probably my biggest buck. Um, well, my biggest grossing buck that I've ever shot. That was two years ago, and that buck was kind of interesting because we'd scouted and found some other bucks during the summer and I never found him until the day of the season and it was actually the morning and the interesting part is that wasn't even the buck that we were after there was another buck in there that you know we were actually after they crested over the mountain and so the three of us took off me my brother and scuba we took off up the top of the mountain and got to the back side where the bucks had crossed over into and they they'd all disappeared and so well, I should back up a second. They were up there feeding for a period of time. Then the sun hit them. As soon as the sun hit them, then they, they disappeared down into the timber. And so we'd circled around and got on a vantage point um, and ended up finding them in their beds again. And when we did, I mean, it was one of those things like, all right, Wes, you want to go shoot that buck? And he's like, no, I don't think so. And then Scuba, I'm like, are you going to go shoot that buck? He's like, no, I don't think I'm going to shoot that buck. I'm like, if you guys are going to shoot that buck, I'm going to go shoot that buck. I've heard Not this that story. Not that I have that much confidence, but it's like <laughs> somebody needs to go try to shoot that buck kind of thing, right? And so they just kind of him hawed And we're looking at this deer thinking, yeah, it might be 180, maybe 190 buck. You know, it's a decent buck. It's wide. It's heavy, but it doesn't have good front forks. It's just a good buck. And I'm like, but somebody needs to go shoot that buck. And they all... He just passed. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go try to shoot that buck. Well, I got lucky enough to get on top of him. And it was a pretty close shot. Um, you know, that was inside 40 yards. I think that was 37. And I just got lucky and made, made a good shot or a decent shot on the buck. And when we picked up that buck after trailing him, it's like, holy cow, that thing just kept growing. Um, just the mass, the inside spread, everything about it. It's, I don't know. It's just it's one of my favorite bucks for sure. Not just because the highest scoring buck, but just the mass on him and the width is incredible. Um, but that so that hike right there is when after we killed that buck, he went into the bottom of the canyon, and when we carried him out, I think Steve we tried splitting it up and carrying it multiple people. So Wesley carried it for a little while, Scuba carried it for a while, and then I did, and then everybody's like, I can't carry that thing anymore. And I ended up carrying it out to the trail that night. And that's the first time I carried out a deer that I know was well over 100 pounds. And I'm like, that can't do that again. That was stupid of me. Um, but, you know, I was trying to get it out to the truck and get meat taken care of and get the rack and everything into a freezer. Um, that just, it was too much um, to try to carry him out 
all whole. So when people talk about that, that always it always floors me. And I remember going back to articles, and you don't hear it as much anymore, but you remember people talking about carrying out a whole deer and their camp all in one load and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, if you're shooting a big mature deer, it's not going to happen. You know, there's people that are starting to you know, use llamas or you get a packer to come in and help you out. And it's like, yeah, that's probably the way to go if you're trying to carry a deer out for any length of distance. You know, you're talking four, five, six miles or something more like that. I, I think the big thing on the packing of, of animals out is uh, if it's, I totally think the even with the largest deer, a guy, if he didn't have all his food, could do the the deer, the cape, uh, the rack and his gear if it's all downhill mm-hmm. and he but he is taking a toll on his body a long-term toll that I'm just finding out because it's hitting me now mm-hmm. now you talking to the canyon that you came out of yep. yeah no <laughs> just, yeah. I don't think you're gonna do it I mean mm-hmm. you might do it but I bet it would take you oh, I bet it'd take you a day to get out of that canyon alone by yourself because yeah. you're talking what probably 10 yard increments and in having to stop oh, yeah. and, and but when it's all downhill it's not as bad for for me it's when you get the uphill like the steep steep uphill that's where you really just i mean at point in time you just can't do it even even 80 like 80 pounds will just crush people including myself if it's straight up it's not good on your body for sure and i don't know i'm i'm dumb i guess sometimes i i started doing that again this year and then luckily we were in a different area, a little bit closer to home. And so I was able to get a hold of my son and I had my son and my nephew this year actually come up and help me. And, and they met me. So it's a trip that normally takes us, I'd say, two and a half to three and a half hours to get out. Um, I think I hiked for seven hours trying to get my deer out. And my son and my nephew finally met me and saved about the last mile and a half this year. Um, and after that trip, I told my wife and I told my brother, it's like, man, don't let me do that again. I, and we even had a packer lined up. It's like I got his number and everything and I didn't call. I don't know what I'm thinking. We did too. And Frank, the last day Frank was there, I was two, two, two and a, probably two, two, two and a half miles from Frank. He messaged me on the inReach and was like, hey, sir, um, I got my pack loaded up. I'm heading out, and I'm like, hey, you're not calling the packer. He said, no, I got it. And then I was heading back to another camp, and you said, you're probably going to catch me. This is a heavy bitch. <laughs> and then yeah. you, Frank oh, yeah. messaged me at the truck. And what did it take you, five hours? Five hours, yeah. That's yeah. Brutal. And yeah. that was camp, deer, and? That was everything except with the exception of food because we ate all of the food. So, I mean, it was it was still heavy. I don't know how heavy it was, but you it was. You probably ate 100, 110. Yeah, it sucked. I mean, I we make awesome backpacks. <laughs> we tell people all the time, yeah, it's a it's a great backpack, but it doesn't matter. Once you get up to about a hundred pounds, it's gonna suck regardless. It just does. It sucks a little bit less than it could. Well, I would say a lot less than it could. Um, yeah. It, but yeah, it was. You know that section. There's that section you got to drop going back up to. You know. Yeah, I came about. up it after you with fifty, and I didn't like it. I it, literally, <laughs> it's not very far, but it's a it's a pretty good increase in, in altitude there and it took me at least an hour to get up that so uh, i'm not you know where we're talking about i filmed that and showed right. amy uh my wife when i was hiking out because she was worried because we ran out of food and there was a storm coming and i said this is the last of mother nature's middle fingers right here 
And it's that switchback <laughs> hole. And I was like, I get up that and I'm home free. And she messaged, she goes, did Frank come up that with his deer? And I'm like, I may pass him on the way up. I don't know. <laughs> I said he had like a hundred yeah. pounds. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was brutal. Yeah, that's why they call you the tank, Frank, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's, I don't know. That's the not smart part, I think. I didn't feel smart when I was coming out. When I was done, <laughs> ran out of water, like. You know, the last section, when you start going downhill, you pop over the top, you start going downhill. That's where I took a little Insta video and I was out of water by then. I'm like, oh, it's not that far from here. Well, if you stay on the trail, it's like an extra couple miles instead of taking the, the shortcut, which the shortcut's very sketchy, but man, oh, that, that trail was brutal. Yeah. Hey, what, uh, uh, just because people will probably ask, tell us everybody about your setup, what you've got for, you know, bow, sight, arrows, broadheads, that type of thing. Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, I actually shoot with the local pro shop. So I try to pick up a new Hoyt every single year. So I just pick up whichever one this year I'm pick, I'm shooting the RX three ultra. And I really do like that one. I'll, I'll probably actually hold on to that one for a little bit longer. And then I've shot gold tip arrows for years. I don't know, just something about them. I've always liked, um, literally I've started shooting gold tips since we bought them out of the guy's garage. Um, so I'm shooting the Kinetic Pierce right now, and a 300 is fine. Um, no extra weight up front or anything like that, so I'm not one of those nuts that loves the heavy FOC and all that kind of stuff. I just that 300 is fine set up, and I think my arrow is weighing in about 420 grains. And then I've shot Grim Reaper broadheads for a lot of years as well, just had a lot of success with them. So I've hopped around and shot different brands, but I just really been pleased with the Grim Reapers. I think they're super, super sharp. I really like their tips, and then they fly extremely well for me. I feel like I can tune and um, you know shoot longer distances very well with them. And I've shot several different models with the Grim Reapers. This year, both the animals that I shot um, actually was with that Fatal Steel. A little bit less cutting diameter, but I just felt like it flew really well. And then I've shot several different sites. Um, but right now, the site I'm shooting right now is a CBE. Um, just kind of, I, I like the setup of it, the pin protection and the movability or the you know adjustability for second, third axis. I've I've toyed around with different things for releases, and that's actually been interesting. So you know, I've shot a index release for a lot of years, but the last couple of years I've gone to shooting a back tension, and I'm actually shooting John Dudley's two finger um, release in a um, activated. So I'll hop between that and then I've got a trainer that's a back tension that I shoot as well. So you hunt with that much. back tension? Is it the is it the back tension or is it the hinge? It's the actual back tension? Well I shoot a hinge anytime I shoot indoor, um, I've got a brass hinge that I'll shoot. But when I'm shooting as a trainer, it's let me think if I can remember this. It's the uh, amber oh I can't even think of the manufacturer on it right now. You said it's brass? No, it's, my hinge is a brass that I shoot when I shoot indoor. Um, but my trainer that I shoot, well, the trainer is a brass as well, but it's the, oh, shoot, I'd have to look it up. I can't even think of the name. If of I the named brand. it off, would it, do, would it do it for you? It probably would. <laughs> so there's Stanos, Carter, Zenith, uh, um, Copper John, Scott. Husker Do's, Husker Don'ts. <laughs> yeah, you got to name them all. Um, man, those are the primaries. It's I the don't stand. know. The Stan. The Stan? Yeah. What's the... 
well, they make a perfect stand perfect. Yeah, it's uh, a stand element in a brass. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, that is one. That is a smooth release. Yeah, Jeremy down at our pro shop has really got people hooked up on shooting that, and then my boys have been shooting and shooting, and they shoot really well. That's actually the same release. If you remember, Wesley was using last year. I don't want to give all his, but he was using that, and he sh- it, he used it to break his target panic. That stand element in a three finger. He was just shooting the aluminum style. Um, but he was shooting it really, really well all summer long, just making real clean, smooth shots. And then he ended up taking it to the high country, um, which I don't know. It, I guess if you're disciplined well enough, that's good. But if you remember right, one of his shots he made well, and then he had a shot that was like sub 10 yards. And I think he was just so juiced up that as soon as he let off the safety, you know, that thing went off and he wasn't even on target. At that <laughs> I point. remember that. I believe you and I were behind the spotter when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he 12 ringed a tree. I almost yeah. cried for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't know. I guess I'm just not sold on shooting those for the hunting situation. Maybe I'm just not disciplined myself. So you you know, I've, I've hunted with a hinge a bunch. I have no issue hunting with a, a hinge, especially I would buff it down with SOS pad on a clicker. So it was mm-hmm. like a flea fart. Yep. Man, I'll shoot a hinge all day long, but one of the uh, the true back tensions, not so much for me. Because, I mean, if I have a doe in front of me at 20, probably not going to have quite the pressure on the old pegs that I do when I have, let's say, a 180-inch ram. And yep. so <laughs> it's just going to be, a, depending upon how juiced up you are, you're not going to be consistent. And so that amount of pressure it takes to make it go off is going to be different each time yeah it's not that i need to rust a shot but it's exactly right i feel like i juice up different on different situations and whatnot um you know you shoot all those shots all summer long at the range at the backyard competition whatever it's all just for one shot in the woods and you're trying to make everything as smooth and as routine as possible and if you can do that and control it great but man i've never been able to completely control it i get excited um my adrenaline starts pumping and things like that. So, Yeah, well, and we get, I mean, it's good you're on here. We get to do a little kind of Q&A real quick just because of the amount of, of questions that we get, which sometimes I look at them and I'm like, are you serious? But then I think, well, I guess if you don't live out here, you know, you don't, you don't know, right, these different questions. So one of the main questions we get, which you've heard me complain about this more than anybody, is where do you set up camp? And I'm going to go ahead and say one more time, don't camp in the fucking basin because it screws everything up. And I'm sorry, uh, I'm nice Mormon, so any Mormon people listen to this, <laughs> sorry about dropping the F-bomb. We had five tents in the basin that held all the deer. I yeah. couldn't, I, scuba, I was like, scuba, I shit you not, that thing was, there was one tent still left. But if if you look at a place and it looks really cool and there's water and grass and everything and you're like, wow, that looks like a great campsite, that's probably because animals live there. So don't put your tent in the middle of it for Christ's sake. So getting off that subject before I get too riled up, where, when you choose a campsite, which is so hard for me to answer these questions, so I've just stopped trying to answer them. But for me, I'm looking at where I can glass from, how close the water is, how far away I am from animals. I want to be far enough away that I'm not scaring them off. And obviously I want to see them. So it could be, I may be a mile, a mile and a half, 800 yards, whatever. So I can have the best vantage point. So I I set my camp up close to that, to where I can see all the animals and still have water nearby. Frank, I guess you're probably 
I made a video of this when we were there just because I was bored, but I said that I like to, my two top priorities are being close to water, which is almost always the case. I always have a creek or a pond or something, and then close to glassing. And I like to have my shelter some somewhat sheltered from the wind, um, whether it be some pines or some some sort of rock outcroppings or something like that to where I don't get just pounded by the by the weather. But yeah, I know uh, people have asked me the same thing, like, Dude, should I camp here? And I'm like, well, if you feel like you're close or too close, then you're probably too close to where you're where you're going to be hunting. and You're probably going to blow stuff out. What do you kind of look at online when you're setting up a camp for for uh, for high country mule deer? Not really elk. Elk's a little bit different for me. Sure. No, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, the biggest advantage is scouting ahead of time, right? So if you get a chance to go in and scout an area and learn an area, then you know where the bucks are at. You know where they're bed. You know where they're feeding. You know what their pattern is, and then you know where to set up. You go in blind, you don't know any of that kind of information. And so, yeah, that's probably the mistake that a lot of these people are making that are coming in, particularly from out of state or out of the area that never have a chance to scout, is they're just throwing their tent up where it looks cool. And if you throw it up where it looks cool, then you're probably going to be right in the feeding areas. Um, we ran into that last year. It, that's, I mean, that spot that you're hunting in, it just feels like it's kind of getting overrun. And there was a guy that had his camp literally set up right in the feeding area where the buck that I was trying to hunt was feeding, you know, and had he scouted it, had he known that, he'd have realized that. Maybe if he'd even paid attention to tracks or stuff like that. But, yeah, you I gotta, gotta say, be where far he enough away, they're not going to smell you. Common sense should have told him not to camp there. Anybody with any mm-hmm. kind of experience at all, that just yep. screams deer will be here, except he made sure that deer would not be there because he put his tent right in the middle of it, but... You know, and that's one of the things is we generally don't set up that far off of the trail. Um, it's like I don't need to hike down into a basin a mile off of a trail and set up just because something looks beautiful. We'll literally set up close to trails. Yeah, you know, and to the for one reason is it gives you access to go one way or another. Um, you know, and then people know that you're in the area too. It's like, hey, I'm hunting in this area and. You know, if you want to hunt here, great. If you want to go on down the trail, then that's fine, too. I'm with Frank. I do like a little bit of cover, um, whether it's rock, a tree, a brush, something, just to kind of break wind and break the weather. Um, The interesting part, even like this year, is we had a hard time finding anything level. Um, You're hunting on the side of the mountain, and everything's on a slope. Feels like you're rolling off your bag most of the night. Um, I, yeah, where you hunted sheep, many times I have literally mm-hmm. dug out a deer bed and yep. uh, just put a flat tarp on the high end and then tent stake, you know, my poles, my trekking poles out on the front end because there's just nothing to sleep in. Frank, you slept in a cave once, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Like a rock. <laughs> I, there was like, there was literally nothing to, nowhere to sleep. And there was like a little boulder outcropping. I set up, uh, it just had a bag bivy. It wasn't like an unwired, <laughs> unwired bivy laid it under there. And then I... I tried to like rig up a sheep tarp when we first came out with it with rocks and I woke up <clears throat> in the middle of the night. And I'm like, damn, this tarp has a lot of holes in it. And like, cause I don't I wear contacts and I couldn't see well. And I like kind of squinted and it was the stars. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my tarp blew away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when, uh, glass, this is another one. Um, I mean, Frank and I, as you know, we pack in the Hubble. We carry 95s. Um, mm-hmm. 
And you, you use 15s a lot as well. And, and what people ask me is, and, and I mean, this is, I'll give my opinion and, and, and Frank can kind of give his and you throw your two cents in. If you own a set of subpar binoculars and you're asking me what type of spotter to get, my answer without fail will be don't buy a subpar spotter, sell your binoculars, use the money for the spotter and buy super high end binoculars, put them on a tripod. That'll, that'll do you far better. I say eights or tens and a 65, 85 or 95 spotter. Um, is a great combo. And then another one for, for high country is running 15s. Um, I usually, believe it or not, I'm stupid enough to pack all three in from time to time. Uh, that's starting as I get older, starting to become not something I do as much. But the, the, the key is, is one glass, what you're most comfortable with. And you and Scuba and, uh, Wesley or Wesley and Scuba seem to run 15s more and, and you run a spotter in tens. But I mean, talk a little bit about that and what your experience has been. Yeah. I, um, I kind of got turned on to that. The very first Jeremy Duggar is actually who turned me on to the high country and I didn't have 15s. I think I had a set of tens and a set of eights and we were up there glassing and he was finding bucks and I couldn't find them. And that was one of the things that convinced me to buy a set of 15s. And then I it did just what you're talking about. Got a set of 15s and put them on a tripod. And that's made all the difference in the world for me on multiple hunts, not just high country. It's like we'll hunt the desert, we'll hunt elk, everything we hunt. It's like I don't go anywhere unless I take my 15s anymore on any of our hunts. It's just crazy the animals that you'll find, just like what you're saying when you throw them on top of a tripod makes all the difference and so for a lot of years i would just take my 15s and not even have a spotter it really wasn't until the last couple of years that i started carrying a spotter along what as well and a lot of it is not necessarily to find the deer i know you were really good at picking up bucks with your spotter but i don't use it to find the deer i use it more to assess and what does the buck look like is that a four point or is it a big three point does he have extras? And it's more just even to take pictures. Um, so I love using my spotter when I go on scouting trips. I don't always carry it on every one of my hunting trips, but I will carry my 15s. Um, it's just me. I I like the extra power of a 15 even over a 10. But I think, Frank, at some point in time, we were sitting beside together. Again, sorry, religious people listening in, but you looked at me and said, fuck these 10s, I'm bringing 15s next year. Because we were glassing from a mile and a half away with 10s, and you could find them. But you're looking at something the size of a BB and something the size of a stop sign from 100 yards away. It's just difficult. Exactly. And yeah, I think the, Frank I, saw it, he experienced it. I think the hardest part of kind of what we were at when Aaron and I were together is we weren't in... Well, heck, a lot of trees were in, uh, I don't know what you'd call that, but like a lot of boulder fields. Yeah, and when like you a get, maze. When you get the sun hitting the back of the boulder and then it has that sh- that shadow, which is like a grayish, dark shadow, and then a lot of those deer were already in their gray face, so you couldn't you couldn't necessarily see them in your tens because the, the shadow was gray and the deer was gray. A lot of the times we were spotting a lot of the deer, we would spot one of the red ones because they're still in their red coats. And then we would find the other, like the gray ones, like there's that trashy buck was red, but that big three by four, he was gray. And we can almost never find him first before we found the other deer. So I think having that extra zoom on your, on your, uh, the extra power on your binos would have been pretty beneficial to have, to have, but we didn't have them. So we were looking through the spotter quite a bit just to find those deer. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you can't afford 15s, if that's what you don't have, all you have is pants, then still put them on a tripod, but 
I, I preach that with my kids, with anybody that I interact with that asks me. It's like, buy the best glass you can. Like, you don't need a new bow. You need new glass. Um, and spend the money on your glass first. And then if you want a bow, if you want other gear, like, dump your money in your glass and buy the best you can and buy a good tripod. And then you can go buy the rest of your gear. What I don't know how many questions I brought up to Frank, but we had sporadic service and one guy was like hey how many hours a day do you glass and i'm like well if we're not seeing any deer eight to 14 like <laughs> that's all we do all day is glass yeah. we might move yeah. a little bit but the thing i don't think unless you spent an entire day on the hillside is the day you appreciate really good glass because guys will bring up and i'm not going to bring up companies but uh uh let's say one that you know really uses a lot of marketing and everything else and they appear to be good from the Insta Google tweet faces eye. But when you get them on the side of the mountain, migraines come into p- play. That yellow tint kind of kills it. You get a lot of chromatic aberration, like a edge to edge clarity. And looking through them for 10 minutes isn't that big of a deal. Looking for, through them for six hours and 10 minutes, that is where you really see that difference. And until you're on a high country hunt and glassing till your eyes bug out, you, you just you just don't know what you don't know. And then once you're back there, it truly, you know, shines through and you're like, oh, this is what they were talking about. Oh, yeah, I've, I've experienced that. Right. When I was in college, I didn't have money to buy glass. And I was actually on an Ibex hunt in southern New Mexico. And I, was, I had a cheaper set of binos, and I spent all day up there glassing Ibex and watching them. I walked off that mountain with a migraine, and it was after that experience. It's like, man, I've got to buy good glass. This, this hurts. Um, it's just not even fun. But you buy good glass, and it feels like it's massaging your eyes, and you love watching the animals. I had an experience this year with Wesley on his buck. I think I watched that buck for about, it was either seven, eight hours before he got a shot at it. And... Washington binos all day long, and at the end of the day, your eyes don't strain, you don't hurt, you don't have problems focusing. It just makes all the difference. The um, one of the other things um, that uh, I was helping a guy out that that hiked in there um, in the in the one area, just kind of teaching him a few things the last uh, couple days, and you know one was about making you know your approach on the animal and uh frank's more definitely more patient than i am but usually i'm frank you say 11 is about the last when they're in their final position kind of planted for the day um yeah usually you you really don't ever want to approach although that buck i got a shot at when he planted it was at 8 30 in the morning and i and i looked at justin i said hey i'm about to break my own rule that deer's ass ain't moving all day. He's in a perfect spot. I'm, I'm going. And I said, but normally you don't ever, ever want to do this at this distance. Cause it was, um, up and over the ski slope. So it was, you know, it's a 45 minute ordeal to, to get there. And that was on a, you know, if, if things went right, it's amazing when you watch these deer, um, what they can do in 45 minutes. And if you're solo and going a mile for the stock and they shift a hundred yards, that's a lot like pissing in the wind on a high wind storm because you're you're approaching something that you just have no idea where it's at. What do you kind of look for normally before you make an approach? Are you usually you're waiting for their second bed? And when do you think that normally is? What's been your experience? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting you ask that because like I don't have any hard and fast rules one way or another, man. I 
oftentimes go off my gut instinct or what I feel like is right. Um, that big buck that I told you that I killed, we shot that buck and he'd hit his first bed, but then they got up and they were feeding in their bed whenever I shot him in their bedding area. Um, so sometimes it's like, yeah, that's a situation where they're not going to stay in their bed and you're going to have to wait and you know it. Other situations it's like, yeah, that's, that's where they're going to bed. They're going to stay there and they're not going to move. Um, so it just, I don't know, every situation I, t- I take a little bit different um, and kind of just assess the situation. What do I think the buck's going to do? Is he going to stay there? And a lot of it you can kind of tell based on where the sun's going to move through the day. Are they going to be exposed within a few hours to the sun? And like, yeah, they're just holding there until they're going to move from the stage to the next bed. You can see a lot of that if you hunt it enough or you kind of understand their patterns or their, you know, their cycle, what they're typical pattern is going to be for the day that so. buck that bedded where i went off after eight thirty. that's exactly was exactly the case where he was at the sun would not hit him from any direction at any time of the day um he yeah. fed right until eight thirty and was bedded at eight thirty nine. so yeah. he didn't bed real late he didn't feed real late but he fed relatively late i mean not crazy late by any means but when he plopped down that's an area that I know I've glassed over about 14 million times and never thought that was even a place a deer could bed. So when he sat down, I'm like, Ooh, that's a safe, that's a safety spot. That deer, he knows he's not going to get hunted there. Holy cow. And that's why, kind of like you said, I didn't think he was going to move. Well, and he didn't, I mean, two and a half hours later, well, maybe a little more than that, I was 10 yards above him and on top of him. And the only thing he had done is a 180 and repositioned his body, you know, from, from one angle to the next. Um, but there's other times, you know, Frank will sit there cause he was looking through the spotter. I didn't have mine with me. It was at camp one. And, and, you know, Frank, you'd be like, well, sun's going to hit him in 10 minutes. He'll be up in 30. And sure enough, it hit his butt and he'd start moving his head. And, and Frank's kind of calling that out. And then immediately Frank's like, all right, he's up, he's up. And sometimes they'll move 10 yards. And that one moved what? 250. 200 <laughs> mm-hmm. That's where your second spotter though helps a lot, right? You got somebody that can signal you, even if you're over close to the situation, and then he can let you know where the deer relocates, things like that. Well, and I think too is how close you are. Like with a stick bow, if he beds in a perfect position and I can be there in 10 minutes, it's worth the risk. Or or 15, if if he's a mile and a half away with a stick bow, it's not worth the risk. I mean, a lot of times because you got to know real close to where he's at. I can't hang back as far. And and that's one thing that Frank is really good at is, I mean, one, obviously kind of calling it out and what they're going to do, but obviously, you know, flagging you in. I mean, you Frank flagged me in, I guess, three spots where I was sub 10 yards on, well, sub 15 yards on two spots. And then the other deer, if I would add my head out of my ass, oh, I'm not even to laugh, I passed the buck. Like I walked <laughs> by it. Um, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> What was that? Probably yeah. two, two and a half miles away. So far. And somebody hit me up on Instagram. <laughs> I posted one of the videos and they're like, it seemed like you could have done a simple stop sign to Aaron to tell him not to go. I'm like, dude, he's fu- he's two miles away. I'm like, hold up. What am I supposed to do? Blow a whistle? Yeah, I, blow a whistle. Yeah. I try not to laugh, but the shit that people come across your plate, it's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Oh, it's because we're two miles apart and Frank's a speck and I can't even see him. He could have had something the size of a truck that was orange. Well, what's yeah. the... What's well, at, the... One t- at one point, um, 
you know, and that, that one buck walked, had walked past. No, I think you went on a stalk, and then right when you dropped your pack, the buck must have winded you and, and took off. I was holding my uh, my seat pad up, which is a, a cut Z pad from Thermarest, so I cut it bigger because I like it just a bigger pad, and it's orange on one side, and I was waving it like this. And you never even, there's no way you could have saw that. Unless well, you looked, unless you stood there and held your binos <laughs> with both hands thing. and looked. You've got an arrow knocked, right? You got your, your bow in your left hand and your release or your finger tab in your right. You're looking around. You got to either grab the rangefinder or not, but you're grabbing your glass and then you've got a guy two miles away. Yeah. All that's real easy to do at one time and not screw up. I had a few guys say, man, it looked like you could have walked right to that. I'm like, oh. Well, maybe you should hike in here 10, 11 miles and show me how to do it because it's two and a half miles to get there from where we glassed. And then, Frank, you're the better part of a mile and a half from me flagging you in. So, I mean, how many times have you screwed that up, Omni, where you're trying to do something All like right. that or flag guys in? Yeah, we had that experience with Wesley and I uh, two years ago for sure. And, yeah, that's – well – in states where you can use radios, that's a huge help if you can actually communicate with each other. you got to need earbuds or some means so that they can't hear you. We may be uh, purchasing those. That's one means. <laughs> I would say the other one you know, people talk about is they use game bags, right? Most of us carry game bags back in there, and so you use two white game bags so you have a little bit more color contrast. But, yeah, it's really easy to lose perspective of where you're at. Well, the the big man, the guy that that was um, there that that hiked in that that uh, watched me when I went in on that last buck, rather than go through a whole you know dictation on what to do, I was like, man, just hold that orange panel above your head like a touchdown if he's still there. I'm like, yep. don't worry about left, don't worry <laughs> about right. <laughs> I'm like, if put it between your legs if he's moved and over your head if he's still there because if he's moved because of the position and you know where I was at in that ski slope area it's not really going to matter where he moves as much because I'm in an elevated position if he's moved I'll just get up high and find him find him yep but and I can find him moving a hell of a lot easier than I believe it or not find him sitting in one spot a mile away because when you get over there nothing looks like it should when you get there you're like wow that patch of trees and that patch of trees look identical shit which patch of trees was he? <laughs> and, you know so and, and justin did an awesome job i mean he kept holding that flag and i'm like huh that deer's still there and i mean it stayed there right till the end and and it can get super con- confusing um i know a lot of people look down on the radios or whatever but man i tell you it uh um I wouldn't say it's vital, but it's pretty close to vital when you're a mile plus away to, to walk someone in. Yeah, I mean, there's it to each their own. You got to kind of figure out where you sit with that, and is it something you want to do? And is, for one, is it even legal in your area or your state? So, is it legal in Utah? I know it is in Colorado. It is, yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, I wasn't sure. In New Mexico, is it? Uh, they say that you're not supposed to use electronic in order to aid in the taking a game. Gotcha. What are you thinking, Frank? What about that handy rangefinder you were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. kidding. just kidding. That is a something that Steve was laughing at because uh oh, I screwed that up. Scuba. Um, although you screwed it up earlier, he grabbed my arrow yeah. and was looking at those the trad veins, and yep. he's like, 
man, I wish they had these back, you know, whatever, because he was just talking about shooting in the rain. And I said, yeah, I've gotten a lot of flack for that. And he goes, yeah, is 90% of traditional archers are using carbon arrows with carbon limbs. They're giving you crap about using a, a vein. And like you said, everybody's got a line, yeah. I guess they, you know, they draw. But I can tell you, if you're drawing that line without going, without, if, if you, if you've gone on several mile and a half to two and a half mile stocks and screwed them up because, um, you know, in the wrong position and you've drawn that line and said, I don't want to use a radio. Then I think that you deserve that. Like that's okay. But if you're making the assumption you wouldn't use a radio and you've never done it, that's a pretty big assumption saying I'd never use a radio. Cause I mm -hmm. bet if you've gained and lost 4,000 feet on a stock and spent four hours of your day trying to get over there, killed yourself and blew it out by 20 yards. And if a guy had a radio, you might change your opinion, maybe. Well, and, and ours was even for Wesley and I, I mean, one of the situations that kind of seem in a bit for us, is like, yeah, we probably ought to have radios on these hunts, if nothing else for us, for our safety. So Wesley doesn't have an in-reach device. Um, so we don't a lot of times have a way of communicating, but he went on a stock and then the buck blew out and it was going to, you know, it's one of your two mile situations that you described and a thunderstorm rolls in and it starts hailing on us. And it's like, Wes, you know, I, I wanted to communicate with him and tell him, it's like, I'm not going to stay here on the side of the mountain. I'm going to go find shelter <laughs> and I hope you're all right, but man, let me know, but I'm not going to see you for two or three hours and hopefully you make it back to the tent you have radios, at least you can have that conversation, you know? Yep. In other words, I'm just hoping that, that he, he understands that's what I'm doing and he's not looking for me on the side of the mountain too, you know? So there's an element of that that's just, it's smart to be able to communicate with each other just for safety and to know that things are okay. So whether you got an in-reach device, you got a radio, you have some way to communicate. Yeah, it can be, it can be hugely uh, helpful. What are some of the more, I guess, highlighted gear you brought, brought up range finders and things like that, but, um, for backpack hunting in the high country, what are some things that you think are, you know, more of a, a top on the list for people? Um, you know, I, you, you need a good setup and we talked about that already. And so aside from a good setup and good glass, other things that you want, it's a mentalist, so you don't need much else. Um, I popped around, I guess I can just run through my, some of my gear that I use, but I've popped around different water filters and we've used quite a few different styles. I do like the bladder and just the inline filters where you can just hang your water and let it, the water run through for the day. That's been super helpful. It's just a little bit less weight and cutting down. The pads nowadays are just a lot better. I've, I've used several different style pads that I can air up now anywhere from three and a half to four inches thick. And that's a huge difference compared to what we used to use for pads. Tents are incredible to me. You guys always like carrying the heavier tents and I'm just, I don't know, more of a minless, I guess. So I can find me a tent that's, you know, pound and a half, two pound tent rather than carrying a five pound tent. Well, and I'll tell you, one of the biggest game changers for me is whenever I started backpack hunting, Everybody traditionally uses Mountain House and other freeze-dried boots that you go buy. And I won't name all the brands. You guys can go look them all up. But I struggled with them, Aaron. It's like I, would, I couldn't hardly choke that stuff down. And so you talk about losing weight, but a lot of it was because I couldn't eat anything. And the best <laughs> thing my brother and I did is we actually bought freeze-dryers, and we started freeze-drying our own mills. And we did that two years ago, and that's made all the difference for me. 
And so if, if we eat a meal, let's say we eat spaghetti and have leftover spaghetti, then I'll freeze-dry spaghetti. You name it, any meal that we eat at the house, we've done fajitas, it's just literally lasagna, anything you can eat at the house, we'll just freeze-dry up and then eat that on the mountain. And that was a huge change for me because now I can eat a breakfast and a dinner that actually has substance to me and sustains me. Whereas, you know, those freeze-dried meals that you buy, I just, there's so much sodium and everything else packed into them, I can't hardly choke them down. Um, But that's just me and maybe just the way I, my palate and what I like to eat. So for me, that's been one of the biggest changes. I would say up until the the off-grid food has been a big one for us because it's almost like you've done it yourself. Um, I, I would say for, well, there was another company that hasn't come out yet. We had a bunch of prototype food and it was the same way, but, uh, um, Frank and I, I eat more than Frank probably, but food is, is definitely paramount for me to stay, you know, super energetic. And so I definitely don't stay, well, his scuba will tell you, I left him some of my food. Like I had (laughs) big sir bars and cookies and quest bars and, and, uh, really good, well, it's from off-grid dehydrated breakfasts and, and dinners. And for me, um, it, and it, when you talk about you've got sleep deprivation and then water deprivation, usually, but not always, food deprivation, mm-hmm. you start adding those all together. If I can and keep, stay on top of some of those, I, I'm going to like the pad. I'm using a 4.18 something thick pad. It's yep. 20 ounces. But it's like a freaking pillow mattress. So that combats some sleeping. And then food, if I can eat really good food and I'm pumping in three, 4,000 calories a day, I don't have to worry about like dipping in my energy level. So those are the things. I tr- if I can keep a handle on them, I do everything I can. And I think that freeze dryer, like you were talking about, South talks about it as well a bunch. Those yeah. are That's big. I mean, staying where you're not hungry is, is definitely pretty important to keep your, keep your butt on the mountain. Yeah, what I would say is like to that point, last year's the first year I came off the mountain that I wasn't ready to run by Blake's Whataburger and <laughs> eat two two cheeseburgers off the mountain, right? I mean, that's normally like the routine, but I come off the mountain and I'm not even hungry. It's like I can just eat normal food and it's because my body's in a pattern of eating foods that I normally eat at the house. And that just makes a huge difference for me. So oh, I would say for sure that's been the biggest game changer in the last couple of years for me. Definitely. Um, well, last year, just because we've skipped so long since we've done this before we end this, because I had so many, you know, questions um, when because uh, I told the story of Steve taking a dang it scuba taking a poop. <laughs> I thought you guys knew I was up there glassing and, and scuba came over and dropped a bomb about 50 yards from me. Yeah. And I had come down the hill and, and we well, it worked out really well because. You and Scuba kind of hunted in one area, and then me and Wesley hunted in another area. Um, and obviously, we all became friends since then. We stay in contact with each other. Um, what, uh, you know, when you talk about, like, pressure and uh, I guess you could say more, I don't know, hunting ethics and everything else, I th- think that people need to understand that, yes, it is public land, but there's kind of a certain case where – you know, you've got to kind of make the best of what you've got in a situation. And I think we did that, obviously. Um, we all had 
pretty good stocks and and you had some shots i think but you were definitely on some big deer wesley was as well um you know when you run into people in the backcountry there's kind of an unwritten rule where you know you can't just claim the ground but you just make the best of 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 what you've got and what's been kind of your experience with that and and how to deal with that and everything else yeah it's that's a really good point cuz feels like it's getting more and more crowded. I think you had a post on your Insta story that kind of told the story of backcountry hunting, right? In yeah, a the, men's the bathroom. Guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's like too classic, right? It's like maybe you feel so lonely you go camp by somebody. I don't know. Um, but that's exactly right. It's, you end up with two or three people in the same basin and you blow them out pretty quick. Um, I just, m- my personal feeling is a lot of people don't last. And so... If you can out endure somebody, then yeah, they're probably going to blow the deer out. Things are going to be disturbed for two or three or four days, but then things will end up settling down. But that's four days, and man, it can be long four days in your week. You waited all year long, you take your vacation, and then all of a sudden, you know, you happen to wait for four days for your buck to come back around. So, you know, you, you want to find deer that aren't disturbed. Um, and, you know, just being transparent with you, had Wesley not hit that buck in there last year, on the first day, I'd, I was ready to pack up and go somewhere else just to get away from people, whether it was deeper or into another trailhead altogether. But you end up hitting a buck, and there's a sense of obligation to try to stick around and find the buck and put another arrow in him or get him harvested, right? Well, we tried. So, we did, <laughs> and that's the right thing to do. I have no regrets at all. I mean, definitely built a relationship with you, but then you're trying to kill or harvest that buck that you'd already hit, and that's what you should do anyways. And so we did, and that's, I don't have any regrets on that last year, but it was just kind of reiterated. There was a gentleman that was camped over there on the side where the buck I was trying to hunt, and it just kept blowing it out. And that buck went down in the timber, and I never really got a good crack at that buck. But um, but that's a good example. I was like, hey, man, that's your, you know, you've got that side. I will, I'm, I'm not going to go over there and screw that up. You know, I'm going to stay over here. And that's where um, Wesley had hit a buck. So we, we did make the best out of what we had, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm not going to cross that ridgeline, brother. That's all you. And I'll stay over here. And then I could help out Wesley with, you know, finding the, the one buck he had hit, but man, some people are just dicks. <laughs> There's just no yeah. way around it. Yeah. It's public land. So you deal with all breeds and all types. So yeah, you, know, you just try to make the best of it. That's exactly right. If you don't like it. Then you go somewhere else or go deeper, walk farther. Well, and you were looking for a, a buck over 190. I was looking for a buck over four and a half. So a big difference, <laughs> right? So that helped out too, where I was like, uh, you know, I'll go. And, and honestly, I was going to stay two more days when scuba came in this year. And one, I had missed that deer at like 10 yards. So that was like super deflating. And I thought, you know what? I've had my crack at this buck. You know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, Frank and I could come back in and... I, you know, I can go hang out with my wife and I just gave Steve the info I had and my food and fuel and was like, good luck, man. <laughs> You're on your own. I hope you get him and, uh, and left. And I'm not saying that I was obligated to do that. And in no way did like scuba pressure me into doing that. It's just like, all right, I've had my time. I've had my chances. I'm going to let scuba try and, and, and take him. And hopefully he does. Although I haven't heard from him of you. No, I haven't. So he's been pretty quiet. So. Well, man, do you got any words of wisdom before we hop off here? We should probably, I know we got a bunch of messages coming in. Mm, I don't know. It's fun. Have a fun fall. 
<laughs> so keep winging arrows, right? Don't give up. Yeah, definitely uh, not that. Good luck um, on your goat hunt, man. That's awesome, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Frank's got he's got a tag for Alaska too, and we head out this week for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, yeah, I've we're gonna go back in the high country and make a bomber trip, and hopefully get that big buck man or, or a big buck um frank's nice enough he's going to go back in there with me and so we may <laughs> actually go from uh alaska and back for a day and then head into the high country and hike back into that that basin hunt that and literally come back for a day and go after my colorado mountain goat so i think we're going to be some whipped puppies by mid-october yeah you're gonna be in good shape or worn out for sure but that's fun probably both that's- uh, this time of year doesn't last long enough. I wish there was a way to freeze the days just a little bit longer. So definitely sure. a fun time of year. Well, man, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I, I appreciate the friendship. And, and even though obviously we met on the mountain trying to kill the same deer, it ended up working out really <laughs> well. So, um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate everything. Likewise, man. Thank you, and good yeah. luck. Yep. Good luck to you as well, man. Thanks, Omni. All right. Take care, Frank. Take care, Aaron. All right. See ya.